The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 8th, 2016, the Bart Simpson versus Lisa Simpson edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Person who grinned, almost audibly grinned across from me here in the DC studio is John Dickerson of Faith the Nation. Hello, it, John. Uh, hi, David. It was a great because uh, I know where you're going with that, and so I'm uh, I, I'm full of joyful anticipation, as I say. Good. All right. Can we bring and, uh, in the movie Election as well, since that is no, the not yet. Metaphor, not yet. That's an, my metaphor is Bart versus Lisa, actually stolen from my wife Hannah Rosen. <laughs> so it goes. That voice. Your metaphor. That's an interesting phrase. That voice is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. I'm glad to see we're already we're already at it. At even though we've barely gotten a sentence out. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Hello, John. Hi. Is it oppressively hot where you are right now, Emily? No, but it's super humid. Oh. It's so right now. It uh, I I think even like if you were on the Enterprise, they would not let a landing party land here. It would be. Oh, God. <laughs> it was. It's it is, so gross here. It is. I was just talking with Jocelyn before the show. Just we, you and I both grew up in DC, John. It's the weather is so much worse yeah. than it was when we were kids. Yeah, it's I, true. It's I can't. It's like having a wool, like a war, take a wool blanket, soak it in hot water, wring it out, and then wrap it around yeah. your head. Ugh, that's a terrible feeling. Ugh, yeah, yeah. On this week's Gabfest, how corrupt was Donald Trump's donation to Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi? Then we will preview the presidential debates and the differing styles of our debaters. Then we'll talk about Georgetown's decision to make a form of reparation for the descendants of slaves it sold to save the school from financial ruin in 1838. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, John Dickerson has a profound question about the back-to-school period of the world and how we mark time and how we how we mark our own lives. So we will contemplate time. It's a kind of John Dickersonian question I love to contemplate. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And we have a big announcement. Hey, Boston. Hello, Boston. On Wednesday, October 26th at 7.30 p.m. at the Wilbur Theater in Boston, we are going to do a live show in the final stretch of the presidential election. We're going to do a live show in Boston. What's that date again, David? October 26th, Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. And for a very limited number of fans, there will be a pre-show cocktail hour with us from 6 to 7 p.m. You can get a complimentary drink with us and select seating at the show. There's a pre-sale for Slate Plus members that is already going on. Tickets for non-Slate Plus members go on sale on Friday, September 9th at noon. That's tomorrow at noon. You really should come. It's going to be a great, great show. We haven't been in Boston for a long time. It is going to be really right up on the election and we want to see you there. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Slate.com slash live for tickets to our Boston show on October 26th. Did Donald Trump bribe Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi to discourage her from investigating Trump University back in 2013? That is the question on the table this week for the Clinton campaign, for various journalists, for much of the American public. Emily, can you start us off by sort of explaining the nature of the scandal? Well, as I understand it, Pam Bondi, she's the attorney general of Florida. So her office was considering whether to investigate Trump, whether to join hands with Eric Schneiderman, um, the attorney general of New York, and bring some kind of action against him on behalf of people who felt like they'd been defrauded by Trump University. So her office is investigating that, and she calls up Donald Trump and asks him for money for her campaign, and he writes a $25,000 check from his foundation, which it turns out was illegal, or at least it was it wasn't supposed to be given the way that it was given in a way that has forced Trump to pay a $2,500 penalty to the IRS. And so when the IRS penalty surfaced, I think last week, the story got new legs, it had been reported a lot in Florida, over the summer, but it hadn't really gotten any national traction. So now we have this question about whether there was pay for play, whether Bondi was essentially getting money from Trump with a tacit agreement not to join other attorneys general in investigating him and giving him a hard time legally. 
And of course, one of the reasons I think this story is getting play now is that Trump has been so brazen about how one of the reasons he gives money to politicians is so they'll give him what he wants when he asks for stuff. He's presented his knowledge of this insider way the system works as the reason that he's the person to reform it. You know, Bondi, of course, has denied that any decision she made about how to handle Trump University was influenced by this gift. But then there's also a very lucrative fundraiser that Trump and his people threw for Bondi at Mar-a-Lago. I think it raised like $125,000 for her. And that was after the decision not to investigate. So obviously, there's this cozy relationship here. And I can't imagine we're going to find the smoking gun in which Bondi says... we're definitely not going to find the smoking bun. (laughs) Or the gun. I mean, I don't think we're going to find the note where Bondi says, hey, thanks a lot for the money. No worries about Trump University. I've got it taken care of. And yet it does seem like this is corrupt to have a politician asking for money from someone who faced these legal challenges that other attorneys general made a different decision about. Just to add a couple of grace notes to this. One is that Bondi's answer to the claim that this is corrupt is, I didn't know we were pursuing this. This was at a lower level. I I had nothing to do with it. It wasn't on my radar at all. Therefore, how could I be shaking him down to make a decision I wasn't even aware of? The other thing is, I think that she actually delayed an execution of someone in Florida so that she could attend this fundraiser and then do the execution afterwards. She definitely did it for some fundraiser, and I think it is for this one. And he also gave her a cut rate at Mar-a-Lago. So so. So the, the what she was billed to use Mar-a-Lago was much less than than what the rack rate is. Um, right. So, John, politically, is this a damaging kind of story for Trump? And this, you, you're always a big person who says that the things that damage you are things which counter the narrative that you're telling the world. Does this counter the narrative that Trump is t- telling the world and, and therefore damage him? Or is it well, just sort of like, oh, well, we, this is what we would expect him to be doing. So yeah. what's the big deal? No, I think that I think the things that damage you are the things that go to the narrative of your biggest weakness. So his biggest weakness is he doesn't he's not fit for the presidency, that he's too impulsive, lacks restraint and would be a disaster in the actual office. So this doesn't go to that. I think what this does is, because I have two reactions. First is to put it in a little bit more context. Remember that one of the central boasts that Trump has made throughout the campaign is that he understands the system so well as an outsider because he bought and sold politicians. Now, he hasn't just made this claim in passing. He made it in the very first debate. He had said it in another debate. He said, when I need something from them, talking about politicians, two years later, three years later, I call them and they are there for me. I've got to give to them because when I want something, I get it. In Clear Lake, Iowa, he said, when I call, they kiss my ass. It's true. They kiss my ass. Another time he told the Wall Street Journal, when you give, they do whatever the hell you want them to do. That is not the complete set of times that he boasted that he was such a master at controlling politicians during the campaign. So it is a nice pithy set. It is. Well, yes. Curated by uh, my team of um, uh, crack pith gatherers. Right. Right. Um, Anyway, so he was claiming that boasting, but he was also saying that, like, I've got this game so wired, I understand it. So along comes this fact check. Turns out. His statements were true, right? This is a kind of fact check you don't want. And this was always the underlying tension in that boast, which is if it was ever true, then he's doing something that's potentially illegal. Of course, if it's not true, it's another instance in which he's making incredibly broad, self-aggrandizing claims that have no merit to them. And when people have asked over time, where what politicians did you own with such facility – He's never been able to come up with even a mildly good example, except Hillary Clinton, which gives you just another reminder of how cockeyed this race is. He he said that in New York, he got some zoning help, but he's always quite vague about it. And then with Hillary Clinton, he said, you know, I gave her foundation money and she had to come to my wedding. I guess the point here is just to put this donation. This donation looks like exactly what he was talking about, but there's no smoking gun. There's no proof that that Bondi put the kibosh on this. But I mean, by the standard that's been used about some of the meetings that were set up for Hillary Clinton, this normalizes what Clinton was doing. In other words, like a lot of the meetings that Hillary Clinton had with donors to the foundation, the Clinton people have said, look, these meetings would have happened anyway. 
why are you making a big deal just because they gave money to the foundation? So basically what Trump is saying here is they would have made this decision anyway. It had nothing to do with my donation. I would like to rise in defense of Donald Trump. I can see where Pam Bondi has gone wrong here. I actually think we have to draw a distinction between the politician and the private citizen. I think it is wrong to accept a bribe and to to ask for a bribe if that is what she has done. And you think it was a bribe? Well, I don't know. That the public citizen, that the that the public servant has an obligation to be above corruption and to to not be swayed by this. The private citizen has no such obligation not to try to sway them. I well, think it is, it is in perfectly within Donald Trump's rights to make donations to politicians that he thinks might be able to help him, that we will get access to, that he can then use to to call in a favor here and there and to know that he will be heard. I think that is that is a hundred percent the right Does it of it. matter of that he could be said to have covered up this donation by giving it to a group with the wrong name, like this whole kind of covert move with the IRS? Yeah, Did, I mean, the, the, or do you th- believe him that he just screwed that up? No, I think I think part of my you know if I, if David Plotz were designing the system is that there's a lot of transparency and immediate disclosure so that the public knows that Donald Trump is doing this. It's straight up and above board and that the the back channel money is I wouldn't stand in defense of the back channel money. But I think in, if, if you are a business person and you need something done and you want to have political influence, if you're a private citizen, you need something done, you want to have influence. I just don't think it is wrong to spend money to try to create that influence. I don't even think it's wrong to spend money to intention knowing that there's a decision that's about to be made that could go in your favor one way or another. But to that's do not it. the issue at play. If the, that you can't do, if there's an if there's an investigation, you're giving money to change the investigation. That's not right. We well, that's I don't know that's why that's not right. It's wrong. It's wrong. Because for the, that's it's wrong for the, corruption. Well, no, <laughs> but it's wrong. It is wrong for the politician or the government official to accept the money. No, that's where it's wrong. But Emily, but I don't it think it's true. We have laws that you can't do that. Right. You can't bribe. You're I, saying it's not wrong. I think you mean right. it'd be okay I'm in saying your it's world. More, I think it is you morally can also okay. Get in yeah, okay, just for to be clear, the bribe. Right. 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 Yeah, but I don't think offering a bribe should be a crime. Right. Well, that's fine. That's you. But anyway, the point is, it is illegal. So that's <laughs> it. But weird then, idea. then the other, the no, other thing. No, it's not a weird idea. It's true. Wait, David, can back up the reason? Reason that we have quid pro quo corruption and bribery is illegal is to deter it. If it's only you know, a sin or a crime from the point of view of the public official, then you have, right? Like you want to probably give prosecutors a little more leeway to go at it on either end. In reality, thinking back on, you know, like the Blagojevich prosecution, et cetera, what one hears about is the person accepting the bribe, um, the corrupt politician. And, you know, we talked about this with the governor of Virginia and that prosecution too. So just to untangle all the threads here, because we went down a bit of a an attractive alley, but one that may be off the main thoroughfare. <laughs> but an alley, um, nonetheless. Not at all. Uh, but to David's other point, which is, I mean, clearly Donald Trump gave to officials who could help him in whatever his various business dealings were that he might need someday. And in the many different ways that money influences politicians, it's not unheard of that a politician who has gotten a lot of money in the past or who has such a relationship with somebody that they can feel free to make a personal call to them and ask them for $25,000 would, in anticipation of future needs to request money from that person, might have a more relaxed view about their matters when they come before them than they would the person who gives them no money at all or who has no opportunity to give them money. Secondarily, their office, which contains some of the DNA of the person at the top of it, would have a set of instincts and and responses that might be in sync with the interests of the person at the top of the office and would therefore not join in a, an action by New York to take on Trump University. In this case, by the way, we, still, we have no proof of quid pro quo corruption. We should be clear about that. And secondly, the rationale they gave for not getting involved in the case was that New York's investigation that they were being asked to join it was a nationwide claim. And therefore, they say uh, there was no need for the state to join it. Emily, you can evaluate whether that m- makes any sense or not. But let me can I just add one I quick mean, other it's thing? Not like, yeah, let me sorry, just one other quick little thing, tiny. No, no. The political context here is the the other, in addition to what's morally right, what's legally right. But then there's the political, which is this is not too terribly different than a lot of that for which Hillary Clinton has been criticized. Obviously, she was in a different position. She was the Secretary of State, yeah. Clinton Foundation, et cetera. But I think in that context, this is not so dissimilar from from but, a lot of what she's gotten grief for, but, which I know you think is okay, David, but I'm just saying- But wait, isn't it much worse than what she's accused of? I, but yes, I actually Emily, think- I think it is worse. I actually think that what she- 
I do not think that she has done anything. I do not think the Clinton Foundation is corrupt. She's a you know an admirable, honest uh, woman and admirable on honest public servant. However, if you are inclined to believe the bad side of this, yeah, what if Hillary Clinton has been swayed by donors to the Clinton Foundation? It is much worse than Donald Trump trying to sway some public actor. I totally disagree with this. Why is it? even remotely wrong for you to say, you know what, we're being investigated in a bunch of states. I'm going to make some can contributions. I, can I interrupt before Emily speaks? Those of you who are driving and listening to this and are about to drive uh, into oncoming traffic, take a breath. Enjoy uh, for a moment. Don't Emily condescend. Will. Don't condescend Emily, to me, John. Emily, don't be, don't play like I'm the high-minded. The, the high-minded. Keep it that, going. That is, Emily, go that ahead. That is unseemly. That is, Emily, that is dirty I mean, pool. Emily, go ahead. Uh, let the dirty pool continue. What I I mean, I find this comparison actually infuriating. Clinton is <laughs> when you get to the there's like a process substance problem here with the Clinton Foundation yeah. accusations, right? It's like, did the Clinton Foundation folks try to use the influence of the fact that these donors were giving to the foundation to affect how this how Clinton was doing business as Secretary of State? That's a fine process question to ask. When you look at the substance of what the Associated Press and everyone else has uncovered, there's just nothing there. Whereas if you believe this set of accusations about Trump and Bondi, he headed off a potentially very damaging investigation with a $25,000 check. That is like an actual substance outcome that we should be almost everyone in the United States, I think, would find to be of concern. David being outside of. No, no, he would agree with the second thing. Not not that much. But I think Emily's put her finger on the exactly right thing, which is that the substance outcome here is if you're going to make the equivalency argument is what's very different. Nobody has yet drawn as. I think it, I wonder if this is true. I think this might be true that there is not a policy outcome. Let's assume for both for the purposes of discussion that we are assuming guilt on the part of both Clinton and Trump. Although I I understand that's a dangerous assumption in both cases, but let's just but do for that a moment, for a moment. Hypothetically, thank you. Yeah, for a moment, hypothetically, let's assume guilt. The guilt in the Clinton cases, they've shown that basically they got some meetings. Meetings were increased. She met with certain people. Is the meeting? as bad as or equivalent to getting your investigation quashed because you gave money. Emily, well, continue. I mean, can you well, hey, all right, let me put let me this set of facts yeah, about Hillary Clinton. Sure. Like we would be going nuts. And that's another thing. This is actually the thing that is bothering me the most about this story. I think you're right, John, that because this doesn't reinforce the dominant narrative about Trump's weakness, it's not getting much traction. But why can't we add? Why don't people add to the narrative about Trump's weaknesses, the fact that he's a total scam artist. We have so much evidence of that. And it almost seems to me like there should be these two narratives about his weaknesses. And this one should be reinforcing the second one, which is equally, if not more important than the first one. I agree with you 100 percent, Emily, about the difference between the Clinton and Trump thing. I would just here's where I would draw it. If let's imagine that Hillary Clinton is Pam Bondi. And Donald Trump offer, you know, pays $25,000 to corrupt this investigation. And Hillary Clinton goes along and, and doesn't do the investigation. What Hillary Clinton has done in that case is miles worse than what Donald Trump has done. I just, I, I just want to repeat yeah, that the, being a public servant who is corrupted is much worse than being a private citizen who is trying to corrupt. I think that's one has an obligation to the whole country and to all citizens who voted for them or, but, you know, put them in this office and the other, is has much less so. I think that makes good sense. But you had to put Clinton in bu- the theoretical what bond. You, you pla- just did. You did like a triple backflip to. No. What I'm saying is that Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Clinton is Pam Bond. Pam Bond. No, but also she, she but, doesn't smile. Oh, you had to, you had to put her ludicrous. in the bondy, the theoretical bondy right. position because there's nothing no, in the fact nothing, pattern it, yet. Absolutely, that, absolutely. Right. There's nothing in the. You're Which, by the way, true. isn't to say. Can we go back to like my narrative questions? Yeah, but hold on. Can I? Sorry to interrupt. So frustrating. But we shouldn't leave people with the impression that paying money. At least as far, I know this is not David's position, but at least that paying money to gain even access, let alone, uh, you know, is a good thing. 
uh, by the way, just actually, I think David is basically arguing that he thinks it's fine and dandy. No, I know he does. I know, but I'm saying ending investigations. Uh, anyway, go for what was your point about narrative? Why hasn't the scam? I mean, asking this question has this sort of <laughs> inherent futility to it. To ask why, you know, I have an answer. A negative characteristic of a candidate hasn't taken on is to just like wring one's hands. But I do just feel like there is all this scam artist evidence that is somehow not not quite uh, uh, taking hold the way one feels it should be. Well, I can give you my t- guess about that, which is Hillary Clinton has tried yes. very hard to do that, right? In in a very similar way that Humphrey tried to undo George Wallace in 1968, which is to say any of you who are trying to who are flirting with Donald Trump as your champion, you the working man's champion, look at what he's done in his private life and he's been a scam artist and that's what they used about the defunding subcontractors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The problem is that she's a bad messenger. Nearly 60% of the country has an unfavorable view. Only 30% of the country thinks she's trustworthy. She is not coming from a position of amazing strength on that question. So if people looking between the two think, hmm, do I want the scam artist or do I want the person I don't trust? Like, you don't get a big, he's not going to, you're not going to get a big advantage there. And Mm -hmm. so, whereas if you try to make your fight about competency in office, you do two things. One, that's where people think she has a leg up on him. Two, you take his natural impulses, which are impulses that his campaign fights against every day, and you use those in the service of your campaign. If you were to go at Donald Trump, you want to like, and the same with Hillary Clinton, you want to hook, you want to do whatever you can to get her in front of cameras talking about something she doesn't want to address directly. Because what will happen is it will not only remind people of the underlying thing that makes them nervous about her, but then in her current answers to the question about the thing that makes her uncomfortable, she will reanimate people's doubts about her because the answers she gives have a kind of KG quality to them. And so with Donald Trump, the same thing. That's why they're trying to bait him. That's why they said he lost in his visit to Mexico to the Mexican president and that he choked because they're trying to basically bait him into acting impulsively, which not only is bad in and of itself because the impulse is goes overboard, but also it reanimates their central claim, which is he's too impulsive for the presidency. All right. Let's leave it there. That nice, vigorous, vigorous blood flowing discussion. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The presidential debates start September 26th at Hofstra University on Long Island, New York. Lester Holt of NBC will moderate the first debate. There will be a town hall in Las Vegas, I think, a vice presidential debate in Virginia, and the final debate will be where, John? I can't remember now. It's usually uh, Missouri. WashU. Yeah, yeah. WashU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always in Missouri. The moderators were chosen this week. I'm going to editorialize for a minute. John doesn't. John can close his ears. It is ridiculous that John Dickerson is not moderating one of these debates. It's just absurd. It's insane that John is not moderating one. I just want to say that. Emily, I'm sure, agrees, but whatever. I agree. It's crazy. All right, John, you don't need to we may have you don't need to comment. Um, John did not approve this message. We do agree on that. Um, I'm glad so, to find something I agree with you about this morning, David. That okay. might <laughs> uh, Emily, there, there's also been a, a spate of good stories in the past few weeks about the debate prep styles of the 
two candidates and my dear wife, Hannah Rosen, sort of put, t- depicted these debates as being between Bart Simpson and Lisa Simpson. As you understand it, how would you characterize how each of them is preparing for the debates? Well, Hillary Clinton is studying hard. She is doing her homework. She's, you know, mapping out in many colored coding all of Trump's debate performances in the primaries, what seemed like a successful way to bait him, what his strengths were. She's deconstructing the whole thing and trying to plan every second of her own debate performance. And Donald Trump is breezing on in. He doesn't think that it's a good idea to overprepare. He just wants to be himself. Yeah. I think the only thing to add is what we all know um, and what's implicit in Emily's tone, which is there's a lot of expectation setting that's going on in terms of like, oh, Donald Trump isn't preparing at all. But, you know, secretly he's behind the scenes like studying like mad. And and I think Hillary Clinton's they're both a little bit spinning to their existing uh, talking points, which is Hillary Clinton is the diligent workhorse. She loves policy. She's all she wants to do is, you know, get in there and work on solutions. So I think that's that's the reason that they promote that idea. Trump, A, it's not in his nature really to prepare. Um, and B, they are trying to use it. Kellyanne Conway is campaign manager was trying to use the difference in the way the two are preparing as a way to draw a contrast between the two candidates that Donald Trump is a real person, not a, uh, I think she called like uh, Hillary Clinton, like a statist character in, in this context, which is interesting that being prepared for what was to come would be seen as like uh, something that only a person who believed in a, a big overarching government would do. There's all that funny beforehand stuff that's going on. I think the most There's so many interesting things about the debate to come. Well, can I just interrupt and ask you a question about this? It is weird. I feel like we've talked about this before. It is weird that the the spin coming out of Clinton camps is look how hard she's preparing, not look how dangerous Trump is. They 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 don't seem to be setting calibrating expectations. Yeah, they're not calibrating expectations in the way that you would think they would try to, which is that he's so dangerous he crushed everybody in the Republican debates. But do you think anybody would believe that? I don't know. You know, I think I believe it. I feel nervous for her, not because I don't think she is an awesome debater, but because he's such a misogynist. To me, what's like cringeworthy about thinking about these debates is to have this woman on stage who could well get attacked in these just like, I mean, look, maybe he'll defy expectations and realize that this is where he could screw himself up. But I just like he's he is. So abhorrent in his treatment of women, and I. But shouldn't you welcome that as a Clinton supporter? Yeah, you want him to to say grotesque things. Well, in her, yeah. But there's something about, you know, the thing about Trump is, yeah, you can say that he's revealing his weaknesses and he's turning off voters, but he's also making mainstream these incredibly hateful ways of thinking about whole groups of people. I mean, it goes to the way he has been demonizing immigrants and the way he talks about black people and the way he talks about and treats women. I just like there's this part of me that feels like making surfacing this as, you know, the the nominee of one of the major parties as opposed to treating it as like this underbelly of American culture. There's just something troubling about that. Can we talk about the strategy here for a second? I think there's some interesting yes. chess match questions here, which is one of the things that they that all of these candidates learned, but that the Obama team really learned between the first and the second debate last time is that debates don't work as a narrative. They work as a moment, a series of kind of flashpoint moments that both capture the audience that's watching, many of whom are watching on several different devices. Some are watching on Twitter, some of whom are like paying attention to the dog. Uh, so you want to have set piece moments where you deliver lines. So in part, what the practice is, is not do you have, you know, a specific three point plan for lowering the number of suicides among veterans, but do you have these three moments? And those moments also then will get replayed again and again and again in cable. And so that's part of what is being practiced, presumably by Hillary Clinton. I mean, when people watch debates, they, the way they talk about it is they this is a, a moment where they look at the candidates as they might be president. And so for Donald Trump, this is literally the biggest moment he has to fix 
his central problem, which is people have consistently, 60% or so, don't think he's fit for the actual office. And you could imagine if he had restraint and could take direction, somebody saying to him, you should do all the things that people said you have not done, be self-deprecating, be generous, show some things that would be a set of qualities that nobody's ever associated with you throughout this entire campaign. And if you show them, you will get 100 million people watching and all the coverage will be about that because it'll give the analysts watching something to talk about. And there's nothing the analysts love more than the shiny object in front of them instead of the full arc of the narrative. And so just go do that and you'll get several days of, oh my gosh, look, he can you know, restrain his impulses. He can fulfill uh, the, the, the you know, role that's being asked of him. And if he can do it in a debate, he can do it for, in the presidency. And that you only have to do a couple of times to get people to talk about it enough. And uh, so you could, if, if... But that, again, is so infuriating because that yeah. is such a low standard. Right. Well, and then it's important for the people to judge who judge the candidates to keep reminding everybody what the actual job requires. And that this isn't just a show... And some people, um, you know, uh, will have to go try and do that. Um, oh my god! That, I feel like the paragraph John said is one of the most terrifying things. People among us. <laughs> it was so terrifying, though, Emily. Given well, what John said, what what is it? Let's assume that the right. Trump can do something like that. Is there anything? Is there anything that Clinton can do on the flip side to to uh, deal with her greatest weakness, which is that people think she's dishonest and over you know they're sick of her well i think she needs to really check her own irritation about whatever question she gets about that email server so on wednesday night matt lauer did this should we call it is it a town hall john is that the right i guess yeah word for that event yeah and you know i didn't watch it but reading her answers it just sounded like you know she said something at the end like and i did exactly what i should have done just as i do every day and i just thought like oh you've got to be kidding like that (laughs) however true or not true that is it just doesn't play well it also seemed however that matt lauer gave clinton a much harder time than he gave trump and that is like Again, where, when does that ever end? Why is it that the person who's prepared and has the details, the candidate who seems actually prepared gets given a harder time? Is, is that something that's just going to be with us? Like, does that ever turn? Does the press, do the people who are making the decisions in that moment in the press ever get embarrassed by that? Well, if only somebody would talk about what you actually have to do as president as a way of evaluating these candidates, that might work. It. Yeah, that would help. Just since I sketched out what the, what it seems to me is the, obvious strategy for Trump. And I say that obvious as if I, you know, knew what I was talking about. But um, the I think for Clinton, uh, the challenge is there are going to be a lot of people who aren't I mean, it's a challenge for both candidates. But let's look at it from the Clinton side for a moment, which is a lot of people are going to be watching for the first time, really paying attention to to the race for the first time. They will come with a set of impressions, mostly created by the kind of conventional wisdom, which is this is an ugly race. It's like they'll have some loose impressions but this is when they'll start they may take some real impressions about the race but you could imagine if the clinton team was uh uh expected trump to do what i described that that then part of her job is to remind people of why donald trump is a danger if the man standing on the stage is not doing that work for her and that's a tricky thing because how do you do that without sounding and this would be true male or female, although I'm sure there's a g- gender piece of this too. But um, it doesn't – it sounds more forceful in a in a performance like that to, you know, say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, as opposed to, well, he did this and he did that. It just doesn't have the same commanding ring. But you could imagine that they're prepping to not let him – walk past his his history, both as a candidate and as a human being. Um, can I ask you a question, David? Is it the moderator's job since uh, to fact check the candidates in real time, do you guys think? There's yes. a lot of conversation about well, that. They, but that, so the, John raises this because at this Mount Lauer Town Hall last night, Trump lied about his record on what he said about the Iraq war, and Lauer didn't call him on it. It depends how much of that material is right at your fingertips. I but certainly it don't think be at your fingertips. It, especially yes, at this but you, point. Yeah, but it, but it should be. It should be. Although to be able to uh, at that moment recall, I, I suppose if you're asking the question, you presumably should know what the answer 
the factual answer is and therefore can I mean, be able to I mean, we saw this play out it. in the primary debates, right? It's like it's it's so obvious that he's going to do he's going to say, no, I didn't say that or, you know, skate away with a lie about what his position was on the Iraq war. It just seems like shooting fish in a barrel at this point to be prepared to call him on that. The most memorable moment of the 2012 debates, wasn't it, when uh, Candy Crowley called Romney uh, and, and sort of said, you're wrong about. Well, it's that, but that's the a lot of people did not approve of that as a in specific terms, but also just because what happens is when you do it once, then you have to keep going. And what's the difference between a politician spinning and a politician getting the facts wrong? And then there's a debate about the facts and the having corrected something in the middle of a debate. <laughs> I my instincts obviously are one way, but the but the debate the question is: Is a debate a debate or is it a sort of inter- interview in parallel? Because in an interview, you obviously are supposed to check them on their facts. But in a debate, it's really supposed to be you're facilitating a debate between the two candidates. On the other hand, if one of the candidates is saying something, and particularly in the case of the Iraq war, which is demonstrably not true, and in which the candidate persists after months and months and months of being told it's not true, persists in saying it, then that's a that's something different. Also, Trump may be a standard of one, which is that there has never been a candidate who lies so, as much as Donald Trump has lied in his public appearances. I don't think I've ever I don't think there's anyone who's ever come close. And therefore, is there a special obligation with him to point out the lies or or do, uh, the lies yes. just like we we assume, oh, he's going to lie and we just don't take anything he says at face value. I don't think that's fair. I think you do have to call him on it. Yes. I mean, he's the person for whom CNN has created this new Chiron rule of like putting in parentheses what he's lying about. In fact, someone should ask him a meta question about being that candidate. So there's lies and fact checking. And and as you all know, I feel like there is a strategy which has been used in part by the Obama White House, which has been used effectively by Donald Trump, which is to say something you know not to be true and be happy with the fact check because the fact check does a lot of your work spreading the underlying untruth for you. Fact checking, you know, isn't the perfect disinfectant that everybody thinks it is. But the central question here is actually not about the rightness or wrongness of fact. It's with both candidates and any candidate because they all have to do this to be successful. But they create their own reality. Partially, candidates have to create their own reality in order to get through the day. Because if you're full of self-doubt and you believed everything your detractor said, you'd be a mess. But the question is, when you get into the office of the presidency and you create your own reality, that's when you make decisions that get people killed or materially affect the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. So the capacity for creating your own reality with facility and completeness is something that should be interrogated with both candidates. And which of the two candidates is best at creating a reality that is impervious to external information and maintains that reality come hell or high water? It's not just about like little fact-checky, ticky-tacky things here and there. It goes to the capacity of the candidate to create a fantasy world in which they live prior to going into an office, which is arguably designed to create an even greater fantasy world in which you are encased and cocooned in sycophants and your own self-approving narrative, and which will exacerbate that weakness. So as people are making their choices, they've got to figure out which of the two candidates already has the predisposition to doing that, and then will enter an office where it will uh, encourage you to misbehave on that specific front even in even greater ways. Okay. Last question on this, Emily, on the debate is, I'm not giving this to John. I'm giving this to you. Uh, Roger Ailes is advising Donald Trump. Chris Wallace, who is moderating the last debate, Fox News uh, anchor, smart guy, but worked for Ailes for the last 20 years until about a week ago, had praised him lavishly. Uh, is there, is it wrong that that uh, Wallace should be doing this given the Ailes relationship with Trump or just, you know, it's part of the game. I can't get too worked up about that one. I mean, and I guess it's my assumption and hope that, you know, what Wallace cares most about is doing his job at this debate. He's a professional. He's going to make sure to be closely questioning and scrutinizing both these candidates. Um, and I'm, you know, calling up my image of Megyn Kelly doing a lot of the real-time fact-checking and playing back at Trump his own words that she did when she was part of moderating one of the primary debates. I mean, I <laughs> you got to hope that Wallace is going to be moderating in that same spirit and that he and Ailes are not 
plotting behind the scenes. What do you I, guys think? I would jump. I, I know David wanted to uh, protect me from this question, but I think Chris is um, fair and good and tough. And I think his, I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll matter. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Georgetown University announced last week that it would give admissions preferences, the same kind of preferences it gives to alums and to children of faculty, to the descendants of slaves who worked at the school particularly the descendants of the 272 slaves who were sold by the university in 1838 so that the school could financially stabilize. They were sold, some of them down to Louisiana, notoriously terrible conditions for slaves in Louisiana. The university is deeply studying its historical relationship with its slaves. It did not offer scholarship money to the descendants of slaves, at least not yet. That may follow. But still, this form of admissions preference is a kind of small reparations, probably not sufficient, but it is unusual and it's interesting. And we we want to talk about it. So is this the right decision that Georgetown has made to offer this admissions preference? Is it enough, Emily? Right decision. Not enough. It seems like, especially since when you're talking about selling people and getting money for them to continue the life of the school, that providing some money now for their descendants would also be, you know, completely fitting. The other thing about this is, you know, the reason Georgetown is in this position is that the Jesuits who are running the school kept these meticulous records, and that's unusual. And I mean, I think Georgetown should be given a lot of credit for the energy And the fact that they're like, they really are trying to deal with this, which is, I haven't heard of another university taking this, giving this kind of care and attention. So, and there's a a sort of satisfying element of the directness of the, the opportunity for reparations here, right? I mean, usually when we talk about reparations for the descendants of slaves, we get into these complicated questions of like, who's going to be able to prove that kind of lineage? And what do we do about um, African Americans who suffered other forms of discrimination much later? Do they come into this umbrella too? It just, it seems too diffuse. This is not diffuse. This is like, we know who these people are who had these ancestors, and some of them have come forward to speak. And so there's an opportunity here, I think, to do more. One thing that disappointed me about Georgetown's approach was that when they realized late on that they could identify some of these descendants, they didn't bring them into the process of determining how to handle this, what to do. And apparently they didn't even invite them to the announcement of the uh, the this decision that the university was making. And that just seems like such a typical but also unfortunate slight where you know, the university and the white people who still run the university are holding on to the idea that they're the people in power kind of conferring this 
magnanimously conferring a benefit on other people as opposed to actually like bringing them into the process, treating them as the as people who should be helping to decide what happens as opposed to just like expressing gratitude for whatever the university decides to do. At the very least, in terms of the the money, so so the the sale of the two hundred seventy two slaves netted what is calculated to be three point three million dollars in current dollars. At the very very least, Georgetown needs to set up a fund of three point three million dollars to say, "Here's the money. Here, this is the money. Yes, we sold your body. We sold you, and we took that money." And now we have to give that money back to you. And probably that 3.3 should be the beginning of a fund, right? It doesn't even seem to me like it would be hard to raise that money. It seems like such a worthy kind of obvious thing to do that it it should be sort of a no-brainer for the university. One thing just to interject that the Catholic sacrament of penance and reconciliation is a part of the Catholic ritual and particularly the Jesuits are very into that. So there's a connection here between, you know, the idea is you're fallen and you need to constantly reconcile yourself to the sins you've committed in a public and, and real way or else, you know, that's part of your job and your duty. So um, this feels to me in keeping with that, regardless of the whether they're doing it well enough or not, it seems that's part of that tradition that this school is a part of. I mean, to to that, I, one of the things that I was thinking about is why Georgetown, why? So Georgetown had slaves that were not the 272 who were sold. Where Georgetown is faulting itself, it's not just for having had slaves. It doesn't really fault itself for having had slaves. Every institution at the time, basically, in certain parts of the country that had money, was built on the backs of enslaved people. It is faulting itself, taking responsibility for the act Mm -hmm. of selling people, the shame of having sold people into this worst condition. And that's why I'm not sure we're going to see the same thing from every university. I'm not sure that every oh, university has this kind of moment in the way that Georgetown has this moment. I cannot imagine, John, that your alma mater, UVA, was not – that there isn't some deep slave connection. Oh, yeah, and I think they've – uh, yes, there is a, not only a relationship, but I think they've tr- they've tried to do something to acknowledge it, but I don't know what that is. Would be interesting to know how many universities have records of the names of the slaves who just worked on the university and on its properties and whether – this idea of admissions preferences as if they were legacy families or a scholarship fund could be extended, whether you can identify descendants in the parallel way, even if it isn't linked to a sale, if it's just simply linked to ownership. Right. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output, bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. Let's go to cocktail chatter. What, John Dickerson, will you be chattering about? The study uh, conducted by researchers at the Innsbruck University in Austria has found that those of us who love to sip a gin and tonic are more likely to have uh, psychopathic tendencies than those who enjoy something sweeter. Now, Wait, a gin and tonic is sweet. This comes to from Stylist magazine. A gin and tonic is sweeter? Well, I guess it's not as sweeter sweet. as like, like an old-fashioned huh. or a Manhattan, I think. Anyway, those of us who drink gin mm. straight <laughs> don't have an out of the sweetness that comes from tonic, if you call that sweetness. <laughs> so bitter taste preferences are linked with malevolent personality traits, they uh, explained. And really? is just, this is just some serious bullshit, John. Whatever you're reading here is just like 100% land? bullshit. But continue. <laughs> Please, go ahead. I'm just, uh, I'm just saying, look. Let's not question science, shall we? I'm fact-checking you in the middle of this debate. Oh, my God. I tell you what. So apparently the people who enjoy bitter food and drinks, such as coffee, gin and tonic, radishes, who enjoy... 
you who enjoys radishes? Not a single person on this I planet enjoys a radish. You do not enjoy I'm a, a radish. I do. I love a radish. You do not enjoy. I love a radish. radish. You go out of don't your you way to get a, a radish. Don't you have a chatter about like you know James Blaine or something instead? Isn't there, uh, some, isn't there some story you have about William Henry Harrison that you haven't? Anyway, uncorked the, uh, yet? No, but the 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 whistle stop this week does have a whiskey theme in the ent- in the beginning. Anyway, the people who like these bitter foods are have displayed tendencies of Machiavellianism, psychopathy, narcissism, and everyday sadism. I love that. What a, that sounds like oh a store. God. The what? everyday sadist. Anyway, one of the primary traits of the psychopath is his fearless bravado, which is what they think this, the, <laughs> the evolutionary explanation is that poisonous foods tend to taste bitter, which is why we're averse to them. But psychopaths are adventuresome, and so they were apparently uh, down with eating the, the naturally perverse thing. Now, the way they studied this is that they to the extent they studied it at all, is two separate experiments with 1,000 people. First, they asked 500 participants to examine a long list of foods, ranking how much they liked them on a six-point scale. They were then asked to complete for separate personality questionnaires in which they were how much they agreed or disagreed with questions like, when making fun of someone, it is especially amusing if they realize what I'm doing. And another thing they were supposed to agree or disagree with was, I enjoy tormenting people. Yeah. And so basically- that's what I'm doing with this chatter. what you're doing with the yeah. chatter. Anyway, so they basically found that people who like the bitter foods enjoyed tormenting people. So, is, um, John, this this is just nonsense. This is I, nonsense. Uh, this I'm is just nonsense. I'm just telling you what I Wrap read in, on the internet on the stylus. Wrap it up. So Where look, was if, this published? If you're Which like me, journal? if you're like in the stylist, and it was uh, well, no, 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 the stylist wrote <laughs> the, the stylist. piece about no, but the the actual researchers you can't even find here. a real women's magazine. Oh, oh, hold on, no, the actual researchers <laughs> here made up women's magazine are the. Um, Wait, I said it at the beginning. The uh, University of Australia, Innsbruck University of, in Australia, reputable university. Austria. Uh, Austria. Oh, shoot. Sorry. <laughs> 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 I, I couldn't read my handwriting. Um, strictly speaking, there is not an Innsbruck, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> clearly, but if there were, too much it would gin only this have morning. In it right, but but that's why. People. So anyway, but the point is that this affirms the my, one of my favorite scenes in Oliver when Fagin <laughs> yells to the little kids, "Shut up and drink your gin." He's that he's behaving that way <laughs> that because is a he's great a great scene. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so next time you have your gin and tonic when you're in Innsbruck, uh, Australia, um, be careful. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna just forget that this oh cocktail chatter ever happened. We're going to, next week, we're just going to go back to the regular cocktail chatters from John. Okay. Emily, Emily, please, please wipe the bitter taste out of our mouth with something else. Um, my super nerdy cocktail chatter is about a much anticipated report coming up by President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. This council was charged with looking into lots of forensic science, like bite mark analysis and looking at hair samples and footwear and especially ballistics, tool mark, firearm analysis. These are all forms of science that come up a lot in criminal trials where you have an expert saying like, yes, this bite mark matches the defendant's teeth. And so I can tell you that he's the murderer. A lot of the science has very shaky foundations, and we've known that already. There was a National Academy of Sciences report on this, but President Obama's counsel seems like it's poised to really take a very critical position on this form of science, and they've already gotten a lot of flack, pre-flack from district attorneys around the country and their national association. And what really strikes me about this is... <laughs> How insane it is that when the stakes are a person's liberty, the courts are allowing in science that is not solid science. And it goes to this broader question of what kind of standards, what kind of responsibility there should be by judges when they are citing social science or hard science studies when they're trying to think about it. And there is no completely clear answer to that in the American courts. There are various sort of half stabs at it in terms of when you allow experts in. But it's not like we've ever reached some kind of judicial consensus or set of requirements for judges about how they think about science. So anyway, I hope this report will improve the science that is being enlisted by courtrooms to convict people and and put them into prison. And uh, we'll see what happens. All right. My chatter is about a great story I read in Vanity Fair. I, like many people, I have been transfixed by the Theranos 
drama. Oh, me too. We haven't really talked about this. We haven't. But there's a wonderful story in Vanity Fair this month about Theranos, and it's about its very secretive, paranoid, and CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, about the very bold and persistent reporter at the Wall Street Journal who exposed the fact that Theranos, its technology didn't do what it claimed to do, and that it had built a kind of a vaporware business that had become valued at $9 billion. And it's a it's just a really Remind intimate. people what Theranos, Theranos does. Theranos is a, is, it was a, is a company that claimed to be able to do blood tests without taking huge amounts of blood. So it was just going to do a pinprick test. And with this pinprick, it was going to be able to very quickly with its high technology spot diseases and analyze diseases in the same way that you previously needed full vials of blood and more time for. And, and it appears that many of the claims made for the science were not true, that they were not able to carry out the tests that they said they were. And there was a huge amount of smoke blowing around this company because its its CEO was so she was so Steve Jobs like and she had mysterious a black and glamorous. She and, dropped right. out of Stanford. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of like TED talk. Mumbo, she, yeah, jumbo, she was hand constantly waving. TED talking. Oh God. Yeah. Um, so the the Vanity Fair story really does the forensics on it in a um, in a very enjoyable way. So and basically, was is still giving the pitch even though all these holes have been shot in it as if it was all, it's all still fine, which is, you know, like incredibly disturbing and also a sign that she's probably a gin drinker. <laughs> <laughs> and no, also, she isn't. Can she's we one of these people I think he, she doesn't consume anything except green juices. Which right, are bitter, bitter, which, which are bitter, bitter. Yeah. bitter. See, once again. The Innsbruck Institute of the Falklands has been ratified. Can we have a moment for the Wall Street Journal reporter who doggedly refused to believe these smoke and mirrors claims and really went in despite the fact that Theranos sent, you know, a whole posse of lawyers over to try to intimidate him and stop his reporting. Um, I hope John Carreyrou, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but it is a model lesson for old fashioned, like check your facts, do your homework journalism, where the, the whole tech reporting universe had just like fallen at the feet of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. And there's a this, the story opens with this great scene of Holmes holding a staff meeting with all the beleaguered Theranos staff and the first Cario Cario story comes out and her just sort of belittling the story and demeaning Cario, her whole staff starts shouting, fuck you, Cario, you, fuck you, Cario, you, and that chanting that. Oh, um, right. It's an amazing yeah. scene. Mob yeah. rule. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producers, Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Play Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Uh, if you like the show, that really helps us and really gets us higher up the iTunes rankings. Please come to our show in Boston on October 26th. Tickets at slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. 
your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. (laughs) 